the Batemans. Uh, is it ringing out there? Yeah, big time. The Batemans are just sweethearts. So if you're not in a group, uh, some of our, like they mentioned, some of our grandmas. Uh, for those of you that are new to this church, this is a replanted church. And some of the folks that have stayed around for these last seven years are all 80 plus, And they are tougher and more holy than you. So you should get around them. <laughs> You need to learn from them old ladies because boy, oh boy, do they know what's up. And I love them. They are my sisters. Precious, precious. So uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mamas in here. And God bless you guys. How many mamas do we have in here just by a raise of hands? All right. We want to pray for our mamas, and we want to pray for those that are trying to be mamas. At Taproot Church, it was a number of years ago, just off the cuff. I said, let's start praying for piles of babies, because when I showed up here seven years ago to replant the church, there was my family. Uh, that was about it. And a and, uh, former youth pastor, his kids. And so now there are babies everywhere. There are baby bellies everywhere. It's a, it's a fun, fun environment to be in. So we want to pray for all the moms, fellas. You can call your moms. Ladies, call your moms this afternoon. Just thank them for who they are. Serve them. Bless them. Take care of them because, man, they have a full-time job that none of us could handle ourselves. We also want to pray for those in here that are trying to have children. We know that infertility on days like these can be just excruciating. And so we want to come around you. We want to bless you. And you are valued in the Lord beyond what God is giving to you or not giving to you by way of children. You are valued and loved. And so we want to pray for all the mamas, the moms that are to be, the moms that uh, are here with us today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for our moms. I think of my own mom, Lord, who, um, (laughs) oh, I wouldn't want to be my mom. And so, Lord, I thank you for her. And uh, I pray, God, that you would bless the women of this church today, the moms, They hold a unique place in representing who you are, that tenderness, that nurturing, that care. And so we thank you for our moms and we thank you for the mothers in this room who are giving forth that nurturing, caring, tender work to the children. Lord, we pray that there would be a multiplication of mothers in this church who are following Jesus, following the lead of their husbands, loving, Lord, their families, caring for them. We pray today, Father, for adoptions in this church, foster care, that there would be moms and dads who would take on that role of taking in the abandoned and the orphaned as you have taken us in. Father, for the, for the precious gals in here today, who today's a day of hurt, May they just trust you. May they embrace, Lord, this season in their life. And may they rejoice in your goodness. Guide these families, Father. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for our mothers, for the work that they do in our lives, for their grace, for their love. And we pray to bless them mightily in every way. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we can give our moms a round of applause, please. Okay, so we're in session number three this morning. For those of you that are here visiting, we are in a seven 
part series of sessions, not necessarily sermons, but teaching sessions. These sessions will go on and become a handbook. These sessions are serving as the foundation for our future membership, formal membership at Taproot Church. And so we have talked about membership as discipleship, that there's been this cultural shift from consumerism, that is, I come to church and I choose a church and I become part of a church based on what that church gives to me. The baby boomers did that well. God bless them, but the baby boomers are into retirement and on their way out. The millennials and Generation X have come up and taken the helm of the church. And in that process, there's been quite a renovation. And we're in the midst of really a church cultural renovation where membership at churches and the standard of membership at churches will be raised. No longer will there be members who sometimes are seated at the Sunday gathering, sometimes give a little bit, but based on sacrificial cross-carrying discipleship, And really based on the history of how the church has operated in the world, membership in the church of the next generation is based on what can I give to this community? What can I give to this family rather than just sitting? Where am I to be serving? And so we are outlining those things over these seven weeks. Last week, we talked about the disciples Bible, the Bible is the definitive authority for Christians. It is the standard of truth and guidance and life. And so if a disciple does not believe and read their Bible, a disciple may not be a disciple of the God of the Bible. And so we spent over an hour talking about the importance of the Bible, how we got our Bible. In one session coming up, the disciples community and the disciples disciplines. We'll talk about how we read our Bibles, how the Bible guides us, things of that nature. That brings us to today. Today's session is the disciples, God, the disciples, God. And I want to start by establishing for us why this is important. Remember, we're a missionary church. That means that we as a people exist To bring renewal to all things by making disciples of Jesus Christ. We are persuaded, if you are a member or considering membership at this church, a guiding factor, a driving force in our lives is that we believe that Jesus Christ and following him is what will bring renewal to marriages and family and workplaces, neighborhoods, classrooms. And ultimately, the Bible teaches, and we believe, that as disciples of Jesus, Jesus will one day, maybe today, usher in an entirely new world. Heaven is not the end of this world. The Bible teaches that the end of all things, eternal life, is a renewed world. A new heavens, a new earth, 
within which humanity saved by Jesus will exist for all of eternity. And so we now make disciples of Jesus, bringing renewal to all things as we follow the creator of the universe in him. And we establish in this community a missionary outpost. We reach out to the world around us, having been sent by Jesus to bring renewal to our workplaces, to bring renewal to our families and homes and neighborhoods. And today, as we talk about the disciples, God, we need to understand something very important about our culture. We live in a post secular culture. What that means is that as modernity, as sociologists and demographers have come to label it, as modernity captured the mind frames of humanity, science and the enlightenment thinking drove our questions. And so the question of times gone by was, is there a God? Can we know there is a God? I'm not sure there is a God. Those questions by the majority of our friends and coworkers and family members and neighbors, and maybe you sitting here today are not being asked anymore. Today, in a post-secular society, the questions are, which God? I don't think any of us would deny that the prevailing question of the human heart in our culture is, why so many gods and why does it matter which God I choose? Why not choose one out of the buffet of spiritual choices that are presented to me by the culture around me? So the question is no longer, is there a God? It is now, which God? And why does it matter which God I follow, which God I serve? And the church, as we've discussed in every session and we'll discuss in all the rest of the sessions, has been placed in the midst of this culture, this culture asking which God and why does it matter which God I choose to follow or which God I worship. The church in this culture bears the responsibility of, number one, knowing the God that we serve. It's on our shoulders to intellectually, relationally, spiritually, dependently know the God that we serve. And number two, it's on our shoulders having been placed in this culture to define for this culture around us and defend the God, the definitions of this God of the Bible, we have upon our shoulders the responsibility of defending and defining this God for the culture around us. In other words, the church is in this culture to answer the question, which God and why it matters which God we choose. And then number three, it's on our shoulders to articulate. We are, be, we, we are to be able to express the God that we know and love and serve And explain why this God is the true and living God. Why no other God will save. That is a heavy responsibility. It's something that we value at Taproot Church. It's something that if you are renewing your membership or considering membership at this church. You're making that commitment to know God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. Define and defend God in the midst of a culture asking which God. And be able to articulate why that God is important. And why that God is the God who saves. Which brings us to our first question this morning. 
Why must we know who God is? What is the importance of knowing him? And the first answer that I give to that is the Bible teaches that salvation is based on knowing God. The prevailing notion of humanity as it pertains to being saved, that is eternal life, being blessed in heaven, finding that space of nirvana or utopia, salvation, what all humanity is looking for. The prevailing notion of achieving that salvation is that we work at it. We labor at it. We gain it. We earn it by being good people. There is not a single person on this planet who is not religious in some sense of the word in that every person we meet tomorrow will say to us, I'm a good person. And encapsulated in that statement is, I'm earning my salvation. I'm working for that utopia. I want to find that place of peace and joy. I want to be saved from my troubles in this life and the next. The Bible teaches, though, something categorically unique in all religious and spiritual teachings. All of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation reveals that salvation does not come by what we do, but by who we know and knowing what that God has done for us. So the Bible is unapologetic, exclusive, and clear that there is no other name under heaven by which men will be saved Other than the name of Jesus. An important reason for knowing God is if eternal life is true, there can be no greater knowledge and no greater weight on that knowledge. If we are talking about eternal existence, one in glory and in peace and in joy with Jesus... And the second, in separation and pain and darkness forever, eternally. Please, Holy Spirit, rip our minds from this world into the next and let us feel the weight of that. The importance of knowing God is because our eternal salvation is based on who we know and who we trust. John In his gospel, chapter 17 said this, and this is eternal life. This is salvation, John said, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is one verse of hundreds that make the exclusive claim that salvation comes by knowing God and who he has sent, Jesus, the Savior of the world. And our and everyone's eternal destiny is determined by that knowledge. Why must we know God? Eternal salvation is based on knowing this God. Not only is it this eternal reality... But we see that all of humanity's problems, your problems, my problems, this is a provocative statement, but true, are because you're separated from the true and living God. Your issues, my issues, this world's problems and hurts are because we are separated from the true and living God. 
And so salvation comes eternally in knowing the God who saves us from wrath and hell. And salvation comes in this life as well as God renews our hearts and minds and restores to us that sense of peace and salvation and rightness and righteousness. Number two, though, why must we know who God is? Because of imposter gods. Imposter gods. Throughout the history of the church, gods have presented themselves to the world posing as the God of the Bible. There have been cults and heretics from the birth of the church who have taken the Bible and the God of the Bible and tweaked it just a little bit and called people to trust in this new fandangled God that this new group has figured out and that God has Jesus name on it, but it's not Jesus. It is important to know the God of the Bible because there are imposter gods who pose as the God of the Bible. In modern day setting, two examples would be the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Now, some of you will be sitting here saying, what's the big deal, Danny? They worship Jesus. We worship Jesus. They have a Bible and the Book of Mormon. They have a Jehovah's Witness Bible. Yeah, it says a few different things about Jesus in certain translations, but you know, it's the same Jesus, right? Let me illustrate it this way. If you knew somebody, and let's say they were six foot tall, and they had brown hair, and they had brown eyes, you knew their general personality, you knew their general demeanor, and you were sitting with somebody next to you, and they claimed to know that same person. And then there was a person across the table and this person said, describe to me this man that you're speaking of. Describe to me this person that you know. And so you began to say, well, he's about six foot tall. He has brown hair. Uh, He's he's, uh, uh, of this ethnicity. He has brown eyes. And the person sitting next to you is agreeing. Yes, that's true. Brown hair. Oh, wait a second. But the person I'm describing, this person here to this person says, oh, you know, He has brown hair. He's of this ethnicity, but his eyes are, they're green. They're not brown. I think we would all say categorically, wait, this person that's being described has brown eyes. This person that's being described has green eyes. Those aren't the same people. There may be 99% similarity. But that one small difference in description means that two different people are being described. The God of the Bible has revealed himself specifically with specific detail. And what the cults and the heresies in the history of the church have done, influenced by Satan and driven by sinful hearts, deceived is taken the description that the Bible gives of God and God alone, the everlasting, true and living, saving God, and tweaked it, just a tiny little skosh. Brown eyes, blue eyes, two different people. Jesus, son of living God, eternal, savior of the world, Jesus, Born of the father, brother of Lucifer. Wait, 
Are those two of the same people? No, those are two different people. And so the church has the responsibility of defending who the God is that they know because cults and heretics will rise up as has been promised and they will pose as imposter gods. And our salvation is based, humanity's salvation is based on who we know, who we trust. And if we are trusting in a God who claims to be of the Bible, but is not of the Bible, we are not saved by that God. Think of it like this. If you're standing on a branch and one branch is solid and, you're at a, and you've climbed up the tree. I don't know why you climbed up the tree, but there you are. And you're standing on the branch. One branch you're trusting in is not broken. And you may be barely having enough faith, but you know that you have enough trust in that branch to hold you up. And it does hold you up because it's not broken. But if you step onto a different branch, a different Jesus, a different God of the Bible, and that branch is broken, as the Bible says all false gods are, you stand onto that branch. You may have all the faith in the world. I believe that that branch, though it's a different branch than the branch I was standing on, will hold me up. The minute you step onto it, you will fall. And now categorize that in your minds in eternity. That's why this is important that we know these things. So what kind of knowledge are we to have? What kind of knowledge are we to walk in when it comes to knowing this God? And just a reminder to you guys, these aren't sermons. The pastor hat is off. The professor hat is on. These are much more just fire hose sessions of teaching. And so there's just smatterings of scripture and points and ideas here that are being presented to you to consider as you think about becoming a member at this church. What kind of knowledge are we to have of God? As we talk about what kind of knowledge are we to have, we're to have of God, let me first address something. Theologians have come to describe this topic as the incomprehensibility of God, the incomprehensibility of God. And what they're saying is because we are finite creatures, because we are not infinite and because we are sinful or fallen, our, our understanding, our, our eyes and our ears aren't perfect, right? We, we lose sight. We have to wear glasses or we lose hearing. We have to wear hearing aids. It's the same with our spiritual senses. It's fallen. It's deadened. It's decaying. And because we are finite beings, Knowing an infinite being who is perfect and holy, knowing him fully cannot be possible. And theologians have come to call this the incomprehensibility of God, this vast God who is beyond us. But the incomprehensibility of God does not mean that we cannot know what God wants us to know about him. Does that make sense? So we cannot know God fully in this life. There are some theologians that propose that we won't know God fully in eternity. There will be facets of God that still will not be known and comprehended fully in eternity because he is wholly other than us. But God has revealed to us what he wants us to know of him, particularly how he has revealed himself to be and how he relates to the world and how we are to trust him. So three ways that God has given us to know him, three things and three ways of knowing him. Number one, we are to know him intellectually. This brings us back to our Bible. God has revealed himself objectively. 
Now, we are surrounded by a culture that says, well, God is in me, and I feel God this way, and I experience God this way. Whereas the disciple, the Bible believer, knows God because God has written a letter describing himself, saying, here's who I am, here's how I act, here's how I exist, here's how I save, here's how I love. An objective, outside source of revelation filled with data and explanations and definitions. This is one way, one part of the way that we come to know God. And we do that through the Bible. God revealing himself objectively and unchangingly. So regardless of our feelings, regardless of whether this morning we sense the presence of God here in our hearts or not, God objectively has said, I am with you. I am there. I am not leaving. And this is how I live and work and relate to the world. So we know him intellectually. It's a cerebral way of knowing God. As tied into that and as non-negotiable is this relational knowing. So a saving knowledge of God involves knowing who he is and how he works in the world. We do that through the Bible. But then there's also a relational knowing, and this moves it out of our head to our heart. I married my wife almost 13 years ago. I knew her. I knew who she was. I knew her name. I knew characteristics and facets of her. But over 13 years of marriage, there has been an increasing relational knowledge that has grown. I've come to know her emotions. I've come to know her will. I've come to know her desire. I've come to know what makes her happy, what upsets her. And in the span of 13 years and prayerfully, should the Lord tarry until death parts us, I will have an increasing relational knowledge of my wife, knowing more of her character, more facets of her motivations and her personality. With God, we have an intellectual objective knowing of him and we have a relational knowing. That is, we commune with him. We speak back and forth. We learn more and more about his desires, his will, his emotions, his heart. And it's an ongoing relational knowledge. And then number three in these Ways of knowing God are all interconnected. They're not separate. They're interconnected. Third way that we know God is by knowing him dependently. Salvation comes through knowing God. And this knowing in a dependent way is what the Bible calls faith. Faith. Hebrews says that faith is Knowing faith is seeing what is unseen. Another way that I've come to describe faith that I think is helpful for us is it's surrendering. It's trusting. And so a saving knowledge of God is knowing objective data about him that is unchanging. It is living in relationship with him as he communicates with us through the Bible, through the fellowship of the saints, through worship, through prayer. And it is a dependent knowledge of him. It is a trusting, surrendered knowledge to him. We don't have time this morning, but I used to bungee jump and I watched guys that knew, knew that the bungee cord would hold them up. They had faith in the bungee cord. They were the ones that would show up on the bridge and they would jump. 
Then I knew guys that said that they knew the bungee cord would hold them up and they didn't know it because they never showed up to jump. Here is something for us to consider as a church. I think that there are countless people gathered in buildings like this across the land today. They have an intellectual knowledge of God. They can open up their Bibles. I know this, I know this, I know this page, I know this paragraph, I know this verse, I know this theology. I think that there are countless people who would even claim a relational knowledge of God. I was praying this morning, I went to church, I was worshiping. But the definitive mark of saving knowledge of God is I jumped. My whole life is now centered on him. My whole life now is a process of turning from false gods that I once trusted in to entirely abandoning myself to knowing this God and his grace and his love and his mercy. Let's move in now to a segment here of knowing God's attributes. Knowing God's attributes. These are just systematic theology in 10-minute segment of a session this morning. We have this intellectual and relational and dependent knowing of God. So let's start talking here for a moment about who God has revealed himself to be. And the first thing that I want to say in this segment is this. God has revealed himself to be completely and entirely different than us. He is wholly and entirely different from us. The psalmist would write in Psalm 50, verse 21, you thought that I was one like yourself, but I am not. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because in our knowing of God, humanity's greatest sin is creating a God of their own image, creating a God that looks like them and thinks like them. In our current culture, This is what we see. This is the pluralistic God culture that we live in. And the way that it manifests itself is, well, you have your God that you love, and you have your God that you love, and you have your God that you love. But all of those are simply gods of our own imaginings. Gods that think like us, act like us, do like us, and never tell us no. (laughs) And that God cannot save because you cannot save yourself. So some of the things that are entirely wholly other about God, and here's objective data for you just to know, is number one, he is transcendent and he is eminent. He is transcendent and he is eminent. What does that mean? Those are big words. Transcendence means that God has revealed himself as out there. He is outside of his creation. He exists wholly and completely separate from his creation. Eminence is the teaching that God is involved in his creation. He is in the details of his creation. And God is both of these things one and at the same time. Inseparably transcendent outside of his creation, existing and forever eminent in the midst of his creation, involved in his creation. 
Two things happen when we overemphasize this characteristic or this reality of who God is. If we overemphasize God's transcendence, we become what theologians have called deistic. And all of us will slip into one of these categories as we grow in our knowledge of God. If we think of God's transcendence and we don't think of and know his eminence, what happens is God is just out there somewhere and the chaos of this world is out of his control. God is separate. God is other than that's true. But if we overemphasize it, we never have the comfort of knowing that God is involved in the chaos of this world. God is in the storms of this world. God is imminent in the suffering of this world. And so deism or this overemphasis in the transcendence of God removes God from his creation. If we overemphasize his eminence, which is what our culture does, then God is in everything and becomes actually part of creation. It's the teaching of pantheism and panentheism. That God is the universe, God is in you, God is in me. And this overemphasizing and this deforming of his eminence removes the truth that God sits outside of his creation, is not dependent on his creation, is a separate being with a personality and emotions and a will and a desire that are not tied up in his creation, though he is involved in it. A couple other things here on knowing God's attributes. I want to talk with you this morning about his incommunicable and his communicable attributes. Another way of talking about this is his attributes or his characteristics that are not shared with us and his attributes and his characteristics that are shared with us. Incommunicable and communicable attributes. Let's talk first here about incommunicable attributes. I didn't list them for you. New Testament theologians have lists of these attributes of God that we can know. Some of them are shared. Some of them aren't shared. And I didn't list them for you because some of them are rather exhaustive. What I did is I just took four of them, the incommunicable attributes, and highlighted them for you. Now, here's the deal. It's Sunday morning. Hopefully everybody has had a cup of coffee. This is lofty theology here. Can I just... Can I just point something out? The church of Jesus Christ pretty much shuts down through sessions like this. Pretty much. Why? Because it requires thought and focus. We are accustomed. Listen to me, church. And I want to challenge this and I want us to grow in this. We are accustomed to simple thinking and 140 character tweets And if the commercial goes 30 seconds too long, we've already changed the channel because our attention span has been truncated. And we as the church need to fight against that. The reason that I even wanted to share these attributes of God is not so that we would kind of get hazy-eyed like, oh my gosh, did he just say incommunicable? Incommunicable. What? I'm done. No. So that we learn to love God with all of our minds. When we meditate on and we come to know him in his transcendence and his eminence, there is something that transforms in us. Now, these incommunicable attributes are going to make your brain smoke because he's God. 
He's not like us. And so when we begin to think about him, we're being drawn closer into him. And we're, we're saying to ourselves, whoa, this is a God who exists, who is outside of myself. This is a God who can tell me no. This is a God who can transform. This is a God who can save. Let's talk about four of his incommunicable attributes. Suck down a shot of coffee. Stick with me. Number one. First incommunicable attribute, his independence, or as the old theologians used to call it, his aseity, his aseity. Got that class? Independence, aseity. What this attribute is, is that God is the uncaused cause of all things. And God needs nothing. Now, this is a deeply offensive attribute of God. Why? Because we like to think of ourselves as the cute little cuddly teddy bears that God needed. God was lonely. And so he said, I'm going to create all of humanity because I need that love and that relationship. The attribute of aseity or independence teaches that God did not need creation. God did not need humanity. God existed outside of creation, uncaused. And as we will see in later sessions, out of love caused creation to give himself to creation, not because he needed it. God is fully and totally independent and has no need. That is not shared with you and I. You and I are utterly needy creatures in every way. You all kind of smirk and giggle a little bit. You don't even know how needy we are. Because we were created by the needless God to need him in every way. For air, for food, for emotional well-being, for spiritual well-being. You are created a needy creature. And what we do is we satisfy those needs with fallen things rather than turning to the needless God who created us to have himself. How do we do that? We do that with this objective set of data. We intellectually know God. We do that relationally through prayer and worship and the fellowship of the saints. Lofty theology on some mornings. We do that dependently. We trust in this needless God. Number two, second incommunicable attribute of God is his unchangeableness or his immutability. I like the old theologians. They knew how to bring it. His immutability, his unchangeableness. This attribute of God teaches... That his purpose, his character, and his promises never change. The uncaused cause of all things has not changed his mind about his love for humanity. Has not changed his purpose in bringing glory to himself. From before creation and time ever existed to the end of creation and time, God is unchanging in character, in purpose, and in promises. Here's where the smoke starts coming out of our ears. We, from our perspective, through prayer, experience what seems to be God changing his mind. But in the vast expanses of God's character and God's will and God's purposes, it is unchanging and steadfast and stable. Immutable. It's a very comforting meditation if you go with it long enough. And the notion that God has a plan for you is true, but it's better stated God has a plan that involves you. And it's for Himself. And it is unchanging, immutable, steadfast. 
How do we know that? Objectively through the Bible, relationally today, you're hearing it now. Step into that. Wow. This God who is the uncaused cause has a plan that involves me and it's unchanging. I want to know that. I want to walk in that. Do you feel your heart start to worship right there? This is why I study theology. This is why the church needs to know these things. This is not bland, boring, big words. This is worship of who God is. Third, incommunicable attribute of God that we want to talk about this morning. His eternality or his infiniteness. God is eternal. And it is a non-shared attribute with us. The basic way of summarizing God's eternality is we do not think of God as existing at one point beginning and then going in a linear fashion forever. God exists all the way that way and all the way that way. In fact, if we understand the eternality of God, there's no line. God lives in an ever present now. God lives as much in the past during the civil war, as much as he does in whatever future wars may come. God sees everything in an ever present now. Think with us and me as we are trapped in time. A little more smoke coming out of the ears here. This is a fun one. You don't ever really experience what we would call present. Because what I just said is gone. You're now experiencing the past. You're talking about a memory. And what I'm about to say is in the future. But the present. Smoke coming out of the ears. Whoa. We never get to experience really the present as God experiences that past moment, the future moment. God lives in that past moment, future moment, as much as he lives in this present moment right now that's already past, which is already a memory for us. Whoa. This is what I do in my office for like three hours. Oh. <laughs> it's a good job. I like it. But though God lives in this ever-present now, he works within time and space as we experience it. Mysterious, incomprehensible, incommunicable attribute of God. He exists in an everlasting present, but he works within linear time as we experience it. Worship that God. Depend on him. Fourth incommunicable attribute that I wanted to bring up this morning and we'll move on is his omnipresence. Omnipresence. God is everywhere present at all points in time, in space, continually and eternally. Our culture embraces this teaching easily because our culture is Eastern, pantheistic and panentheistic in its kind of religious mind frame. The notion that God is everywhere is not a struggle for us. The, the notion that God is in all things, that God is present, but this must be categorically distinguished from pantheism, panentheism. How class? transcendence. God is outside of these things as well. God is personal. God has a will. He's not a nebulous, mindless, spiritual, ethereal force in all things of the universe. God is present as a person. God is present with his emotions and his will. Yesterday, my daughter tracked me, my son, baseball game. My life is just one tornado to the next thing. Piano practice, art, class, bomb, 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 bomb. And as we're driving, we had to make the decision yesterday to go to Sophia's track meet and let Joby hang out with uh, his buddies to go to his baseball game. Yesterday, of course, the day I'm not there, first day Joby gets up on the mound, gets to pitch, strikes a guy out, right? And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, I wish this was a communicable attribute. <laughs> Omnipresence. 
I'm there with Sophia in my ever-present now. I'm there with my son in my ever-present now. And then all of a sudden, listen to me, church. This is why we worship this God and love him. All of a sudden, I was like, but my dad is. Whoa. My dad is. Like dad was watching my son. Dad was watching Sophia. He's ever-present now. This attribute is both comforting and horrifying. And we all know what I'm talking about. No matter how deeply secret we may try to keep our sin, there sits omnipresent, everlasting, immutable, unchanging, independent God who is holy. Right where you think you're not seen. He is with you. He is here in this moment, more present, more real in some ways than you and I are real. And so the horrifying sense is a good thing that drives us to this God to trust him, but also the comforting sense that no matter where I'm at, no matter what suffering I'm in the midst of, no matter what horrific thing I am seeing, no matter what I'm watching, God who is eternal and immutable, God who is independent, God who is, as we will see here in a moment, love and holy and wise and good. He is in that present moment with us. How do we know that? We know that as objective revelation, Psalm 139, where shall I flee from your presence? We know that relationally. Oh God, you are with me. We know that dependently. I trust you right now. You're with me. Let's move on to his communicable attributes. Then we're going to get to the Trinity. Then we're going to go... Bless our moms. Communicable attributes. These are the attributes of God that are shared with us. The Bible calls us image bearers. That means that we are reflections of who God is. And that doesn't mean that we're like a mirror and we look like God. That means that we reflect his emotional characteristics. We reflect his desire. We have a will. We have things that we can do that God does perfectly that we do in a fallen way. He has shared these communicable attributes with us. Again, theologians have exhaustive lists of these things. And so what I did is I tried to compress them and highlight some of them for you that would make the most sense to us. Number one, spirit. God is both tangible and real, but he is also a spirit just as you and I are physical, tangible, corporeal beings, but spirit and soul. It's interesting to me that the neuroscientists and psychiatrists of this generation and the next are laboring with all of their might to reduce consciousness their description of consciousness and their description of morality to nothing more than biomechanical, biophysiological phenomena. Because the soul, that shared part that God has given to us of spirit, that intangible thing that really makes humanity, makes you, makes me what we are, points to the reality of a God that we are accountable to. And so fallen humanity will labor hard to suppress the notion that there's something deeper that pushes and drives us and helps us make our, make our decisions. Not just neurons and synopses connecting and chemicals mixing and washing. Number two, second communicable attribute that God shares with us is knowledge. God is omniscient. He's omniscient. That means that God knows everything there is to know. God knows everything that there is to know and every possible outcome. 
God knows every detail. God knows every experience. God knows every thought. God knows every word. God knows every action. Past, present, and future. He knows it as an ever-present now. None of us know that way, but God has shared with us the ability to know things. I know that I am standing in front of you speaking. I know that the sun is out. We know things through our senses. We know things beyond our senses. We're getting into an area of philosophy called epistemology. How do we know what we know? Because God has shared with us the ability to know things, which makes you and I responsible for knowing what he wants us to know, i.e., namely, him. That's why I'm dragging you for an hour through some of this lofty theology. You and I are responsible for knowing him because he's shared that attribute with us. Number three, moving a little bit quicker here. Power. God is powerful, so powerful that he is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wills in any way that he so wills it. Now, there are things that God cannot do. The ever wise, whoever he was, sage philosopher asked the question, Could God make a rock so big that even he couldn't lift it? (sighs) I want to frame my response cordially. And I want to frame it with respect if you've ever asked that question. But that's a dumb question. (laughs) And this is why. God cannot do anything that would contradict his character Or the logic that he has created. So that is what we call in philosophy um, a logical absurdity. It's, it's, It's a non-existent reality. I suppose that you could drive the argument philosophically down that road as far as you want. But you would end up at a place where you end up with the uncaused cause contradicting himself. What God cannot do in his omnipotence is contradict himself. He cannot compromise his character. God cannot lie. Precious people. God can't lie to you. He would never compromise his character. God can do nothing but what is perfectly just and perfectly loving. When we meditate on this truth, when you experience uh, revulsion or anger, when we, my wife and I and Kelsey watched 12 Years a Slave the other night, and the entire movie, I just had this sense of revulsion and anger at, at the mistreatment of people. That is God communicating his love and his holiness and his, his, his will. But in the midst of that, he is good in it. And he could do whatever he wanted with those slaves in those days. And he did that. And so we, we meditate on these things and we experience his attributes and his power. But he cannot contradict himself. Number four, wisdom. Wisdom. God shares with us wisdom. I define wisdom, and there's a multitude of definitions, but I have come to define wisdom as this. Making the decisions that will bring the greatest good for all and making those decisions well. That's wisdom. Choosing to do what will do the best for all things. God always does what is the most wise for all of humanity and all of creation and all of time. Always. Perfectly. Then he shares with us wisdom. He shares with us the ability to make decisions and live wisely and order our lives in such a way that there is benefit and blessing in our lives. It's a shared attribute. Proverbs is full of warnings about our fallenness. The opposite of wisdom is foolery. 
making foolish decisions. And at the top of the fool's definition, Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The epitome of foolishness. A life lived with the foundation of your decision-making being guided by something that will land you in a place in this life and eternal life of great pain and separation. The epitome of foolishness is no God. The Bible also says that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of wisdom, where wisdom comes from is that moment of saying, I fear God. I want to live as God would have me to live. Repent. Number five, truthfulness. Veracity is the old saints would call this attribute of God. Truthfulness. This is the teaching or the attribute of God that he is the final standard of truth. He is the final standard of truth. He is the standard of what is lie and what is truth. And so we live truly when we come into submission with what God says is true. Number five, we need to move on. Righteousness. God is the this final standard of what is right, what is just. And so we live and share that sense of justice, as I was sharing about 12 years a slave, where there's that sense of justice that we have, that sense of that is right and that is wrong. God has shared that with us, though it has fallen. Number six, God is love. We all love this one. God is love. And what love is defined as is the attribute of God giving himself to others for eternity. Now, wait a second, Danny. You said that God was independent. He didn't need to give himself to anybody. He didn't need anything. That's right, because we're getting to the Trinity. God eternally gives to himself in Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father giving to the Son, the Son giving to the Spirit, this eternal cohort of love. And that's why we love one another, and that's why we exist and pursue community. And then finally, number seven, grace. A communicable attribute of God that he's given to us is grace, which is this undeserved blessing. Though we do not deserve blessing and favor from him, he gives that to us out of grace. Okay, we have 10 minutes, and I'm going to knock out the doctrine of the Trinity in 10 minutes. (laughs) Buckle up, class. Here we go. (laughs) God is triune. In knowing God... This is the pinnacle definitive mark of Christianity. This is the defining mark between a cult follower and Christ's followers. The doctrine, the teaching that God is three persons, but one. Let me briefly walk you through the history of the development of this doctrine. First of all, in the Bible... We do not have a specific place that says God is a trinity. You cannot go to chapter 1, verse 8 of the book of Genesis where it says, And the God who is triune said. But what we do have in the Bible are hints at his trinity. And what we do have in the New Testament are specific revelations of his trinity, which we will get to here in one moment. As the church read their Bibles in the early centuries, heretics that we talked about, imposters would rise up. 
and they would try to describe God differently than the God of the Bible. The way that the Bible was describing God, heretics and imposters would rise up and they would want to tweak it a little bit. And I want to, in the name of being, I guess, understanding, the early church was wrestling with how do we define who this God is? We're in this culture. We have this Bible. He's revealed himself this way. How do we define who he is? How do we explain and defend who he is? And so they had to have these councils. So these councils arose. And by the time we get to 325 AD, one of the primary councils of the church in history was the Council of Nicaea led by a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was debating with another man named Arius. Arius was trying to define who Jesus was, saying that Jesus was not fully God and eternally existent with the Father and the Spirit. Athanasius was saying, that is not how the Bible has revealed him. You are presenting a false God. Big council, 300 bishops, and don't think, again, like I've said before, light up some candles. An hour later, we've had a little bit of deliberation. All right, let's head to the pub and drink beers. It's all taken care of. Think years of debates and letters and lofty writings and brilliant thinkers. So from 325 AD, Council of Nicaea, 381-ish, Council of Constantinople, 451, Council of Chalcedon. These councils began to write what became called creeds. These creeds became the confessions of the church. This is what we see the Bible revealing God as. If you believe this creed that we believe represents the Bible, you are an orthodox Christian. If you deny this creed, Nicene Creed, uh, the, the Statement of Chalcedon, the Apostolic Creed, Constantinople, these various creeds. If you deny these creeds, you are not a Christian. You may say you're a Christian, but if you deny these things, you are not a Christian. And the reason being is, it has been said by many, Christianity, the nature and the notion and the truth of Christianity, it stands or falls on the confession of the deity of Jesus Christ and the Trinity. So these councils established these creeds. So if you move from history, clear back here, to today, here is our creed. I'm going to read to you our confessional statement. On the Trinity. Taproot Church believes in one God eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect both in his love and in his holiness. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration, immortal and eternal. He perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning, sustains and sovereignly rules over all things, and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. As a member of Taproot Church... You may not be able to articulate that clearly from memory, (laughs) but after you sign that covenant, you will. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) The point being, we stand on the shoulders of thousands of years of creeds. And here's what I always want to draw this back to you. None of you tomorrow are going to have somebody kidnap your family And say, deny this doctrine of the Trinity 
or I'm going to dip your son in burning oil and light him on fire. Our brothers and sisters through the history of the church did. The revelation of the Trinity is something to die for, something to define and something to defend. Now, the revelation of the Trinity is this. It's, it's, it's interesting to me as I put up there on the board there that it is a unique spiritual teaching. And it's something for me, when I first began to study theology, I wrestled with this and I still wrestle with the mysterious nature of God being three persons in one. But there was a moment in my meditations where suddenly I came to realize, wait a second. Only a being outside of us could come up with this. If Christianity was a man-made religion, Jesus and the Father and the Son would look a lot more like Mormonism or the cults. He would make a lot more sense. Our God would, if written out and described by men and men alone with no influence from an outside force, him, he would look and sound and be much more like the Greek mythologies, much more like the cult's descriptions. He would make a lot more sense. This, this doesn't make sense (laughs) because God is incomprehensible in that sense. God is other than, God is three, but one, incomprehensible, but he has revealed to us this knowledge that we know intellectually, cerebrally, that we know relationally, God, you created me a relational being because you are an everlasting community. God, I depend on this truth. The Father sending the Son to live for me and die for me, my death. I depend on that truth for eternal salvation. Then the Spirit empowering and regenerating that is making me new. I depend on that knowledge for life in this life and the next life. The Trinity, of course, as I've already alluded to and will much more in our session on the disciple and his community or the disciple and her community, develops for us the notions of love and community. And the Trinity is revealed biblically. So in the Old Testament, the Trinity exists, but he's foggy. In theology, we have a concept called progressive revelation, that God is unfolding the pages of a book. And the more that the pages unfold, the more knowledge you have. So in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, you have let us create them in our image. Genesis one twenty six. Read it for yourselves. Some of you may have never noticed that Genesis 1 is not let me create them in our image, God create men, but let us. Hebrew scholars, theological scholars through all the ages have tried to figure out why is that Elohim plural? What is going on there? Why, how many gods are creating here? And suffice it to say, the consensus is, the biblical revelation is that God is triune. There are three creating man in his image. As you travel through the Old Testament, there are other hints. Uh, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, very God words, plural God situation there. There are other hints in what we call theophanies, the angel of the Lord. You'll be reading through stories about Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Many New Test- or many scholars surmise that that's a theophany. In other words, that's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, but it's not explicit. Then we get to the New Testament, And the Trinity blares out of every page. We're almost done. Stick with me. Matthew 3, 16 to 17. Here are the three three in one 
described. Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus, the Son of God, here's Jesus the Son, was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That and countless other points in the New Testament texts, whether it be the gospel writers or the epistle writers, all without apology allude to a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't have time this morning for me to get into all of those scriptures with you, and so we're going to move on, but I can give you footnotes in the book and more information on that if you need it. How to describe the Trinity. This is where we're going to end. One final blast here. How to describe the Trinity. Let me just say this. James White. Many Christians, without knowing it, hold a false view of the Trinity simply due to their inability to articulate the difference between believing in the being of God and the three persons sharing that one being. As a result, even Orthodox Christians, believers, they slip into an ancient heresy known by many names, modalism, sabellianism, patropinism. Today, this same error is called oneness or Jesus-only position. Whatever its name might be, it is a denial of the Trinity based upon a denial of the distinction between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. As members of Taproot Church, here's what you need to know, be able to defend, define, and articulate for the world around us when they ask, which God do we serve and why does it matter? It matters because our knowledge of God is what determines our eternity God has established that knowing him as the true and living God, the only God to be trusted for eternal salvation, there's no other name by which we might be saved, must be the sole source of trust of all of humanity to be saved. Who is that God? This God is triune, and we describe the Trinity in this way. God is three persons. Simply defined, that means the three persons of the Godhead have a will though lined up perfectly with each other, have emotions, have desires. They are separate personages. Each person is fully God. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father all share independence, aseity, immutability, unchangeableness, eternality, equally. We're not talking about the incarnation today. We're going to deal with the incarnation next week as we talk about the gospel. More smoke coming out of the ears next week for sure. Suffice it to say, each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, is a separate person. And each of those persons are fully God. There is only one God. There is only one God. Now, you can understand through the history of the church why heretics weren't Waking up one morning saying, I think I'm going to demolish Christianity and create a false god. No. They were wrestling like you are right now. Wait a second, Daniel. That doesn't make any sense. Three persons. Each of them are fully God. But there's only one God. Uh, This is the mystery of the Trinity. It's the incomprehensibility. It is how God has revealed himself. And so we as believers take the Bible that we talked about last week. That we submit to as authoritative and truthful. We submit our fallen conscience and our fallen logic and our fallen understanding to how God has revealed himself. And we defend this doctrine. And many of our brothers and sisters died through the history of the church. 
helpful chart, though all allegories, all illustrations, all charts fall short. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But they are all God. And even the lines here. One of the incommunicable attributes that I didn't share with you is the incommunicable attribute of simplicity. God is one whole part. He is not divided. So our illustration up here on the screen, and for those of you listening online, has a lot of lines in it and divisions in it. There are no divisions in God. But they are separate persons. When we overemphasize that God is three persons and we deny that he is one, we enter into polytheism or tritheism. We now worship three gods, not one God. Ancient heresy, not really held to by many in our current culture. The heresy that is most often regurgitated itself that we fight against and must be aware of in our current day is overemphasizing the oneness of God, but denying the three separate persons. As already mentioned, these heresies had many different names throughout history, Sabellianism, modalism. I think the best way to describe it to you, to make it really simple, is this. Let me give to you a heretical illustration. God is like an egg. He has a shell, and he has the white, and he has the yolk. The reason that this is heresy, it's the ancient heresy of modalism, is in that you are describing modes. God exists as the shell. God exists as the white. God exists as the yoke. If the yoke could exist in absolute, total, identical Godness or yokeness to the whiteness and whiteness to the yokeness and yokeness to the shellness and shellness in total immutable eternal, then the egg illustration would come true. Modalism manifests itself and regurgitates itself in our minds because it's the most easy way to understand Jesus. It's the easiest way to explain the Trinity. Now, as we wrap this up, if your brain is on fire right now <laughs> and you, your eyes have glazed over, does that mean that you don't know God? And if you can't write some sort of doctoral dissertation on the nature of consubstantiation within the Trinity, are you going to hell? No, no, no. God is not a God of confusion. Now, if you take our leadership courses where we get into deep philosophical and theological conversations like this, we'll drive these questions home. Can a Mormon be saved if he's never heard about the Trinity? Can he only be saved after he's heard about the Trinity? Questions like that. We don't have time to get into that this morning. The point is, for you, you've been presented here the basic biblical revelation of who God is. Your salvation is based on knowing him. And if you are saved, you'll want to know him. You'll want to grow in that. You'll want to defend that. As you're going to see through the rest of this membership series, you'll want to preach that. When I got saved and I started learning about theology, I drove a construction truck and uh, would be traveling all around the, the Northwest in my truck. And I came to be known, uh, my truck was originally the party truck. Man, if you're going to be bragging, you're going to be drunk for three days. After I got saved, it was the preacher's truck. And this is what we talked about. Did you know that God is three persons but one? Danny, what are you talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. It's awesome, though. (laughs) 
As Christians, we love our Father and we trust him to reveal to us what is necessary for salvation in this life and the next. That's the step. How can you know that? The miracle of the Trinity is that God the Son came to us. He lived the life that you couldn't live. That guilt and that shame, that sense of wrong that you fight by saying, I'm generally a good person, you know that your goodness does not suffice. Jesus' goodness sufficed for you. He lived as your substitute. He then died your death. It is the incomprehensible mystery of the death of everlasting eternal God. He took your death. When you know that, not only as objective outside data that in history God died for you, but you know it relationally and then you know it dependently. I depend on the substitute life of Jesus And I depend on the punished death of Jesus in my place. When you know that dependently and you come to trust in that, you are knowing God. You are knowing the triune God and that God has saved you and that God will guide you. You can do that today. You can trust him today. You can ask him to forgive you of your sins. This personal, transcendent, amazing God will come and meet with you. It's quarter to twelve. I want to give you guys about five to ten minutes of questions here. Lofty theology this morning. I want to open up the floor for you guys to be able to ask questions. In this arena, there's no dumb questions. So please, Becky Friedel. question. Let me answer that one first, Becky, and then, and then I'll answer your next one because I don't want to lose train of thought on that. Becky asked the question, when explaining the Trinity to children, is there anything in creation that does not allegorically break down into heresy? Um, and my answer is no. And the reason I say that is because when talking about the Trinity, we have to submit our logic and our understanding to the holy otherness of God, the deep mystery of God, the, the incomprehensibility of God. And what our brothers and sisters through the ages have done is, is they've tried to put words to who this God is and describe him. But as has been said by many theological teachers over the years, the more one tries to nail down a succinct definition of the Trinity, the closer to heresy one gets. So the balancing tension point is staying in that God is three persons. All three persons are fully God. God is one God spectrum staying right in that category. So we're working the Trinity with our kids and have been. My kids are smart, smart little kids, but they're just so raw and so awesome. So the questions, well, when I'm praying to God, wait, God became, was Jesus God? All those questions. And you just continue to repeat the mantra as you have been brainwashed by it yourself. I use that word specifically. I think that brainwashing in Christianity is a brilliant idea. We should brainwash our kids completely. (laughs) Brainwash, do whatever you can do to set in the washing of the water of the word. Let me be biblical about it. Ephesians chapter four. The washing of the water of the word and the word has revealed that God is three persons. Each person is fully God. But God is one. 
And then be careful about use. I mean, you can use allegories and illustrations for little ones, especially, and just try to explain as we explain to ourselves. But that is falling apart. That actually is not how the Trinity exists in reality. We don't have something in creation. So your second question. That's a good question as well. Um, she asks, I use two words, Trinity and tri-unity. Um, I would say that they're equal in the way that I'm using them. I haven't done any reading on the, on the semantic or the dangers, the range, of the definitive range of tri-unity. I simply break Trinity down to, to, to establish the, the truth of God being tri, three, but unified in one. So as I'm using it, um, I don't see any differences there. Uh, but I'm not sitting around a table with, you know, 20 other reformed, reformed theologians who would jump all over that. Language is super important. So Trinity is the word that has been established uh, beginning with uh, a man named Arrhenius in about 150 to 200 AD. Church history for you guys is, you may think it's geeky, but it's a worshipful experience when you start to study how these things have been defended and come about. Okay, good questions. Anything else? I just want to go have lunch with my mom. <laughs> Anything at all? Good. Yeah, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go with option two. Because <laughs> I'm standing in front of 100 people thinking off the cuff here. Um, <clears throat> excellent question, philosophy major Nathan. Um, he asked the question, if, and I'm going to, I'll do what good philosophers do. I'm going to break down your question. And the way you phrased it is, if the Trinity is truly incomprehensible, I want to break that down. The Trinity itself is not incomprehensible fully. What I mean by that is God has revealed himself as comprehensible in three persons that are all fully God, that exist in one essence. That is understandable. Every person in this room uh, that I know has a, has a mind that is working and sentient, has been given as a communicable attribute, the ability to know that God has revealed himself, to comprehend that God has revealed himself this way. Where comprehensibility breaks down is in our logic. Those seem to be contradicting statements. So then following up on that, we can know the Trinity, just not fully. And then your, your next question basically was, well, should we even be using illustrations to help people along? I think yes. If you use the water illustration, which is another illustration of modalism, what you're trying to get across is that there's one molecule of H2O and it exists in ice and 
water and steam. I just gave a perfect illustration of modalism. It breaks down, but everybody in this room is now saying, yeah, that's right. There is only one molecule of H2O, and it does exist in these three ways. The reality, though, of the Trinity is we would have to say it exists perfectly as water, ice, and steam all at one time perfectly, but separately. Danny, that doesn't make sense. That's where we yield our hearts by faith to what God has revealed. We surrender our language. We surrender our logic. And we say, you can discount Christianity as incomprehensible. Pascal's wager, flip the coin. That may be okay to do. Or you can submit your logic to this and say, wow, man couldn't have come up with this because I can't get my head around this. So I'm going to use that as a tool in my own faith, my own dependence. Like, whoa, this is beyond me, which tells me that it is beyond me because it is the Trinity who has revealed himself this way. So I hope that helps. Uh, we're, in the, we're in the deep end of the pool here, class. Um, <clears throat> this is not shallow swimming. And that's the objective of membership at Taproot. We're taking you off the high dive into the deep end as members of this church. Jeff. Okay, excellent question. Jesus, uh, Jeff asked the question about the Jesus-only teachings and the oneness. And let me address this very specifically in our city. In the 1980s, there was a gigantic church in this area known as Community Chapel. How many of you remember Community Chapel? So all the local natives around here remember Community Chapel. Community Chapel began as what was a, a Trinitarian-led group. And devolved into what became essentially a hyper-Pentecostal, Jesus-only sex cult. The church was decimated when divorces, there was a murder that was involved in the fall of this church. But essentially the church broke apart and the influence of this church was so huge that a kid like me shows up 25 years later. And I'm meeting people from Community Chapel, and I'm listening to them in this amazing, glorious church. And in the midst of it, they're talking about baptism in Jesus' name only and a denial of the Trinity. So your question is, where does it break down? And here is the primary breakdown. This is a great example of this for you guys. If I'm describing a person that I know as brown-haired and brown-eyed... But then this person standing next to me is saying, oh, I know that person as well. He has brown hair and slightly green blue eyes. There's something off. The Jesus-only oneness movement, which has its roots in the first and second centuries, third centuries when it really became articulated very clearly under Sabellian, Sabellianism or modalism, is the teaching that denies the triune eternal existence of God as he's revealed himself. So here's, the, here's where the breakdown is, Jeff. The Bible reveals God as brown-haired, brown-eyed, right? Triune. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. God is one. Community chapel, uh, Sabellianism, adoptionism, modalism, oneness, Jesus-only theology. They take that teaching and they say, God is one, and sometimes he existed as the Father, but then when Jesus came, the Father ceased to exist, 
And Jesus was the God incarnate. And then when Jesus died and rose, the Holy Spirit came. And they deny, they deny the tri-theistic or tri-unity of the Godhead. They are describing a different God. They're describing a different God. The Mormons are describing a different God, and they know a different God than the God of the Bible. Why is that important, class? Point one, our eternal salvation is contingent upon our knowledge of the one and true living God. This isn't flip-the-coin spiritual smorgasbord choice like our culture teaches. God has revealed himself as the exclusive Savior. So it's hard for us to retain these ideas because we swim in the aquarium of pluralism. Pluralism teaches that your way is your way, my way is my way. And it's all good, right? But God says, no, it's not all good. And so we learn to defend and fight for these things. I think one other quick comment where Christianity has made a huge mistake is we've become, in our insecurity, judgmental and rude and horrific. So you can go through the history of the church. Let's take something really egregious, you know, for anybody that's been on the college of the University of Washington. You Christians, what about the Crusades? What about in the name of Jesus, slavery? You Christians, you Christians. And it all falls back on the Bible and the revelation of God is perfect. God is perfect. God is unchanging. God is holy. God is good. The Bible, as we have it, has been translated correctly. It is infallible. It is inerrant. But men who are fallen certainly can make error. And so we as Christians need to have that humble, loving, caring, Trinitarian expression of love, which is giving of self, giving of truth. Okay. Good. All right. Any other questions? We're going to wrap this up. Awesome. Listen, here's where we're going. Okay. Becky, real quick. Oh, it's fine. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Let me bring up a term here. I wasn't going to go down this road, but I will. Becky asked the question. You, you say that they're distinct, but they're one. One, I cop out on mystery, mystery, just trust it. <laughs> but the second thing is a term that in theology, here's some more big words for you nerds. Ontological equality, economic subordination. What does that mean? That means this, that God, ontology is the study of being, essence, ontos, our being, our essence, what we are. Ontologically, God in his being, in his essence, is one. He is one. Economically, taken from the Greek word oikonomeos, which is the idea of working or moving or volitionally making differences. Economic subordination or work differences or role responsibilities are what help us understand the distinctions. So listen, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal in being, but they do different works in the world in subordination one unto another. 
So the father sends the son subordinately, though they are perfectly equal in essence and being. The son submits to the father, comes and lives for us, dies for us and resurrects on our behalf. Then the father and the son send the Holy Spirit to regenerate believers and convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So you have Father, Son, and Spirit ontologically in essence as one, but economically the way they work distinctively in the world, they are subject one unto another. Which, by the way, is why in marriage a husband and a wife are one in being, but they have different roles. The husband leads and the wife follows. The Holy Spirit is essentially the the helper of humanity, much like the wife in her role is the helper of her husband. To take offense at that is to take offense at the the very nature of who God is in his essence one, but subjected one unto it. The church is another illustration of this. We are all one, but the elders are vested and held accountable to God with a level of authority in their role. That doesn't change. It's not hierarchical. We're all one, but we each have subjective responsibilities in the body of Christ based on this notion of the Trinity. Okay. Okay. We're going to have to wrap it up. (laughs) Uh, If you guys think you're cooked, you ought to try preparing for this stuff. (laughs) Uh, Oh, wow. Um, here's where we're going over the next few weeks. I love you guys too. This is fun. Uh, we're going to next week, we're going to get into the disciples gospel. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Grab every friend, family member, and foe you can think of. Cause we are getting into the gospel next week. The good news, the heralding of God's love in Jesus Christ. And this world needs it. The gospel drives everything that we do as a church. It is the foundation of our lives. It is the meaning of our existence. It is the purpose of our world. It is the vision of our future. The gospel, the good news of Jesus. We're going to talk about the gospel for an hour and a half next week. The following week, we'll do the disciples' identity. When you come to believe the gospel, and hear this, all of you are trying to be somebody in this world because God made you to be somebody. But you don't get to make it up. You get to receive it. The gospel renews your identity. You'll finally know who you are in Christ. Then we'll do the disciples community, why we live together, why we serve one another. Why are these Sunday gatherings important where you can be taught? Why is missional community important where you can pour into each other and counsel one another and hold each other accountable? Then we'll end with the disciples disciplines, which is just talking about the the outgrowth of what a healthy disciple looks like in this world. Bible reading, evangelism, prayer, Then we'll have a couple weeks. Then the summer lull hits, vacation. We've got guest speakers coming in. Uh, two of our deacons are going to be teaching you guys this summer. Darren and Will are going to be teaching on their respective roles and topics in this church. Then we'll come back uh, this fall, and we may go back to the Gospel of Mark, or we may do a series called The Prayers of Paul. So we've got the year lined out before us, but here's the deal. Jesus could return today. Like, you could be walking out the door and boom. So think about that. Well, come on up. Let's worship. Lord Jesus, you have paid the price for us. So we worship you. And Lord God, we just ask now that your Holy Spirit would um, commune with us as we worship you. You have revealed yourself as infinite and mysterious and true and alive. And Lord God, though we are finite and fallen, we love you. We thank you for revealing yourself.
Though we cannot know you fully, we can know you. Though you are incomprehensible, you have condescended to come down to us to make yourself known to us. That's how much you love us. You love every person in this room. You love this city. We pray to be a force of renewal in this city, a a force of joy, a force of help and service. And so, Lord, you paid our price that we might worship you today and be renewed. Give us understanding. Help us to grow in our comprehension of you. Help us to love our neighbors, our friends, our families, our co-workers, to love this city as you love this city. And continue to go before us, Lord. I pray that you would draw many, many new members into this, this team, Lord, into this kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We exalt you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all-